Tribulation Today Ministries, where esoterica meets biblical Christianity. Well, today I'm going to try to tackle a subject which will upset some people and most likely infuriate others. However, I am bound by my God to speak the truth. So, that's what I'm going to do. The state of our world today is one that is just littered with terrorism all across the entire globe. Uh, so many people I hear saying all the time that you know it's not the Muslims because Islam is a religion of peace but I beg to differ on this point if a Muslim is following the teachings of the Quran the Quran is a very very violent book there are some peaceful entries in the Quran but they're in the earlier chapters of the Quran and to understand Islam you have to understand that what Muhammad said in the beginning if it is contradicted in later parts then the principle of abrogation is instituted and that's where uh, the latter parts actually cancel out the first this was because in the beginning before Muhammad gained all of his military power he was weak and he was in a land where you know there was a lot of other uh, pagans and and Jews so he was very tolerant to them until he gained enough power to actually militarily defeat them. Anyone who did not agree with him or follow the key principles of Islam were to be slaughtered, uh, except for the Catholics. And uh, I'll discuss the reasons for that here in just a little bit. I'm going to incorporate a few audio clips in this broadcast, uh, but before that, I do want to read a few surahs those are chapters from the Quran that may be enlightening to those who believe Islam is a religion of peace we read in surah 929 fight against those who do not obey Allah and do not believe in Allah or the last day and do not forbid what has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger even if they are the people of the book until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Surah 2, 191 Kill them wherever you find them and drive them out from where they have drove you out. Persecution is worse than slaughter. Surah 47, 4 When you meet the unbelievers, smite their necks. Surah 9, 123 O you who believe, fight those of the disbelievers who are close to you and let them find harshness in you. Surah 48:29 Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Those who follow him are merciful to one another, but harsh to the disbeliever. Surah 8:12 When the Lord revealed to you the angels, truly I am with you, so keep firm those who have believed. I will strike terror into the hearts of those who have disbelieved, so strike them at the necks and cut off their fingers. I could go on and on with these surahs because there's just so many of them it could take up the whole podcast. But as uh, a final one that I want to put in here, it's about how they treat their women. It's Surah 434. 
it says, Men are the protectors and maintainers of women, because Allah has made one superior to the other, and because they spend to support them from their means. Therefore, righteous women are obedient, and they guard in the husband's absence, but Allah orders them to guard. And as to those women whom you fear disobedience, give them a warning, send them to separate beds, and beat them. Now, keeping those things in mind, I want to skip to a little bit of an audio clip here that has uh, the basis and origin of Islam and explains where it is actually worship of a moon god. So, enjoy this, and I'll be back after the audio clip presentation. Muhammad was born into a culture where moon god worship was dominant. Furthermore, he was born into the Quraysh tribe, who were particularly devoted to the moon god. According to numerous inscriptions, the title of this moon god was Al-Ilah, which means the deity or the god, meaning that he was the chief or high god amongst many gods. Al-Ilah, the god, was shortened to Allah in pre-Islamic times. Now this part may be slightly confusing. Until now we have seen that in the Babylonian system, the sun is always presented as a male god and the moon presented as a female goddess. And yet here we find talk of a male moon god, not a moon goddess. This is because there were certain branches where the roles were reversed. The male divinity became the moon and the female divinity became the sun. This form of the mysteries was particularly prevalent in Arabia and amongst the Saxons and Norsemen of Europe. This role reversal remained widespread around Arabia in particular, long after its popularity had waned elsewhere. Echoes of this lesser known form still exist today. For example, Kush, Nimrod's father, was worshipped as a god under the title Mani or Manai, which means the numberer. He is accredited under the Babylonian system with inventing arithmetic. Now such has been the influence of the Saxons and Norsemen in particular on Scotland that we have a New Year festival that still exists today called Hogmanay, and this comes from Hogmanay, which means the Feast of the Numberer, who numbers the years. Another small example of how Babylon permeates our culture. Muhammad's father and uncle both had the name Allah incorporated into their own names. His father was called Abdallah, and his uncle was called Obidallah. This echoes the Babylonian practice of incorporating your god into your own name and illustrates the preeminence of the moon god cult in his time. This fact answers the questions, why is Allah never defined in the Quran? Why did Muhammad assume that the pagan Arabs already knew who Allah was? The answer is because they already did know who Allah was. He was their moon god. Muhammad wasn't attempting to introduce the concept of a new god in the Quran. He was merely building on the one that already existed in, in the area. All Muhammad did was go one step further than his fellow pagan Arabs. While they believed that Allah, the moon god, was the greatest of all gods in a whole pantheon of gods, Muhammad said that Allah was not just the greatest god amongst many, but that he was in fact the only god. In effect, he said, Look, you already believe that the moon god Allah is the greatest of all gods. All I want you to do is accept the idea that he is the only God. I'm not taking away the Allah you already worship. I'm only taking away his wife and his daughters and all the other gods. Here is a picture of an Allah idol recovered in Arabia. Note the crescent moon on his chest. 
The pagan Arabs never accused Muhammad of preaching a different Allah to the one they already worshipped, and archaeological evidence proves that he was one and the same. The Encyclopedia of Religion says, Allah is a pre-Islamic name, corresponding to the Babylonian Bel. Allah is nothing more than Baal again with a new name. Muhammad attempted to have it both ways though. To pagans he said that he still believed in the moon god Allah, but to the Jews and the Christians he said that Allah was their god too. In effect, it was the same technique that Catholic bishops had used to merge Christianity with paganism. Many Christians today have swallowed the lie that Allah is the same as the Christian God, when he is in fact Baal. Fortunately, Jews and Christians of that time recognized Muhammad's deceptive ideas and rejected Allah as a false god. Of course, this angered Satan no end, and by consequence it angered his puppet Muhammad no end. And we know that when plan A, manipulation and flattery, fails with Satan, he quickly resorts to plan B, intimidation and persecution. We perhaps never see this more clearly than in the relationship Muhammad had with the Jews. The Quran has a distinct split personality that correlates to two periods in Muhammad's life. At the start of his life in Mecca, he was relatively obscure and had no particular type of influence. He was in a position of weakness. In the second part of his life, he moved to Medina as a wealthy and powerful warlord. There, he was in a position of power. So all the earlier writings from his time in Mecca are generally peaceful. This was the period when Muhammad was in a position of weakness and trying to convince the local Jews that he was a prophet of their god, the Plan A years. All the later writings from his time in Medina, after he had risen to a position of wealth and power, are full of hate and anger towards the Jews who had rejected him. These are the Plan B years. He started calling for their slaughter and waged war against them, along with anyone else who rejected him or his message. Now it's important to understand that in Islam there is a principle of abrogation. This simply means that wherever there is a contradiction between verses and the Quran contradicts itself a fair amount, the later one cancels out the earlier one. So since the violent, warring verses are the later ones from his time in Medina, they cancel out the earlier, peaceful ones from his time in Mecca. This has been a great tool of deception for Muslims, as whenever they are challenged about the violent fruits of their religion, they point to the peaceful Mecca verses. In ignorance, the average person takes them at their word, completely unaware that those verses are effectively null and void under the principle of abrogation. They have been replaced by later commands to slaughter all non-believers and conquer the world. It is Muhammad's words and actions from the Medina years that fuel Islam's never-ending hatred towards the Jews and the problems in the Middle East. It is the words and actions of Muhammad in the Medina years that encourages and condones all forms of terrorism, lying, deceit, violence, murder of non-believers, oppression and domination as a service to Allah. Islamic terrorists are not acting contrary to the example of Muhammad their prophet. They are acting in perfect harmony with his own actions 1400 years ago. The Bible says that, You shall know a tree by the fruit it bears. The entire history of Islam has been littered with this type of violence, and when we look at the life of Muhammad in any detail, we will discover why. It produces bad fruit because it was a bad tree with its roots in the kingdom of darkness. The following are the recorded words and deeds of Muhammad. In the following example, we see Muhammad suddenly and conveniently receive a message from Allah to rape captured women. This event shows a particular audacity, permitting rape at the drop of a hat simply by conjuring a verse from Allah to support it out of thin air.
Any whim or fancy that took him could be acted upon if he claimed he was doing it under divine authority or instruction. Muhammad understood what Nimrod and Semiramis understood, that spiritual authority gives temporal authority. Wherever Satan is involved, there is often a telltale hatred for the Jews, and this comes through loud and clear in Islam. Here, the unbelieving brother was seemingly impressed with Islam's ability to influence people to kill Jews and family members. This practice continues to this day in the Muslim community. Parents will kill children and brothers will kill siblings who leave Islam and call it a mercy killing. The brother in this instant converted on the spot, although we can't be sure he didn't do it out of self-preservation. Islam has a long history of forced conversions where the alternative is death. Muslims have been taught that their redemption will not come until all Jews have been destroyed, and therefore they will not stop fighting against them until they have reached this end. The prophet Ezekiel reports a time when Arab nations will team up with Russia to attempt to wipe out Israel. They will be driven to do this partly because of this prophecy. If the Jews are not wiped out according to Islam, their false messiah can't come. Do not be misled by claims of Muslims that their gripe with Israel is about land. Satan wants the Jews destroyed as he has done from the beginning of time. He has hardwired this desire into the core of Islam through Muhammad and they will work towards that end no matter how much land Israel gives them. Muslims believe that they must kill all Jews or their religion has been proved to be false. It's that simple. The United Nations are attempting to create a two-state solution where Jews and Palestinians share the land, but we know from our studies of the character of the satanic Jezebel spirit that it will not be content to share control of anything. It will have no equals. The goal of Islam is to extend its influence until it rules the entire world. In Islam, the world is currently divided into two, the house of Islam and the house of the unbeliever or infidel. They foresee a day when the whole earth will become Islamic and work continuously towards this end. The name Islam actually means submission, and this refers to the whole world submitting to the rule of the pagan moon god Allah, Allah being another name for Baal, and Baal being Satan. They believe that world peace will only come when they have triumphed over all the so-called infidel. In this audio clip, there was a few uh, video presentation parts that I obviously wasn't able to add into this podcast, so I apologize for those little spots, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory in its context. Well, I think that was a pretty good introduction to this subject. There's going to be at least two parts, possibly three, so keep watching out for part two and part three. I want to take us out in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time that you give us, Lord. We, we want to ask you for forgiveness for our sins, Lord. Lord, I just ask you that everybody listening be revealed the truth of your word and the truth of everything that we speak here, Father. We worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for every breath of air, every drink of water, and every bite of food that we receive, Father. All your blessings be upon everyone here. Father, let people understand this is not an attack on anyone but it is just to reveal your truth. In these end times, it's very important that we understand these things. So, thank you guys for listening. Look out for the next couple of parts, or at least one more part, and if I don't see you on this planet we call Earth, this alien demon-infested rock, I'll see you in the air. 
Shalom. Revival Let heaven roll